0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this week we are talking about women and agriculture. And today we're focusing on farming. And Caroline, this episode made me a little bit jealous because I do not have a green
1: No, I'm at once accepting of the fact that I have a a brown or a black thumb and uh, in denial, because I understand that I have, in fact, killed bamboo before. I've killed a cactus. (laughs) But on the other hand... I am still ever optimistic. I purchased a whole bunch of plants now that it's spring and it's warm and like tropical in Atlanta already. I've purchased a bunch of plants uh, to keep at my boyfriend's house because I have no yard. Um And I am convinced that this year, Kristen, this is the year that I'm going to keep them alive.
0: Well, I'll be rooting for you. Uh, uh, I like well, that. Well, I'll be rooting for the plants. And you as well, but but more of the plants, Caroline. I get it. Rooting. Rooting. <gasps> rooting. I- an intentional gardening pun. <laughs> Didn't even mean to make that happen. We're off to a good start. <laughs> yeah. Um, Well, I can't imagine, uh, for one, keeping a p- plant in a pot alive. But to keep entire fields of plants alive is mind-boggling to me on a personal level. And when it comes to women in farming, though, this is a really exciting time to be a woman working the land. Because women have been farming as long as men have been farming, really. But in recent years, there's been a lot more attention paid. The role of women in agriculture.
1: Yeah, uh, we've got this thing that is referred to across a whole bunch of sources called the grass ceiling. That women are finally cracking the grass ceiling, or I guess putting a shovel in it.
0: Yeah, we're getting out our lady lawn mowers and
1: mowing it down. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, but a lot of focus traditionally has been on women's role on the farm, being one of support. She's the supporting actress. So she's at home, at the farmhouse, she's cooking dinner, she's paying the bills, she's making sure all of the homestead stuff is taken care of, while her cowboy farmer husband is out on the tractor farming the fields. But, as we'll get into, women have so much more of a role than just that, then not that there's anything wrong with being at the homestead and cooking dinner and all of that good stuff. But women do have an incredibly active, rich, vital role out in the fields as well. Yeah. No longer is the end all be
0: all to become a farmer's wife. Um, and Barrett Branth wrote about feminism and the idea of the farmer's wife and the relationship between Farming Women and Feminism in a paper called On the Relationship Between Feminism and Farm Women uh, in the journal Agriculture and Human Values. And she talks about how in the 1980s and 90s, research on women farmers consistently found those farming families, as you talked about, reflecting these kinds of patriarchal power structures, men as the landowners rendering women subordinate to them and in a lot of ways even to the land. And I thought it was interesting, too, that the FFA, formerly known as Future Farmers of America, didn't even admit girls until 1969. Although, as reported on a couple years ago in USA Today, it's now made up of 44% women compared to just 20% women in 1998. So even when it comes to youth An interest in farming. We're seeing a growing interest among girls. But that's
1: crazy to me that, like, I I get the whole thing about attitudes about women and not thinking that women are cut out for farming. Like, I understand that some of those attitudes existed and somehow, you know, still do exist. But it's crazy to me that in an organization called the Future Farmers of America, they weren't even like... "Mm." Maybe we should let little girls play.
0: Well, because they would be in the future farmer wives of America, Caroline. That's where the that's where the girls would belong. (sighs) I
1: suppose under the
0: old paradigm, right? right, I should say, because as Helen Gunderson, who is a farmer in northern Iowa, told NPR not too long ago, quote, "Girls could grow up to be farmers' wives, but for a woman to actually consider herself to be a farmer." Or grow up to be a farmer. That wasn't in the script. And she told NPR about how when she was a young girl on her family farm, her brothers were the ones who were being cultivated. I am so sorry for all of these unintentional farming <laughs> puns, by the way. It's just going to keep happening. <laughs> they were being cultivated for the later harvest. of uh, No, uh, all of her brothers were received all the attention from her dad to make sure that they knew how to operate and manage a farm from the more business side. Whereas little Helen was just, oh, well, you might grow up one day and be a
1: farmer's wife, and you can live off the land that way. Yeah, but she said that when she talked to her dad about this, like, hey, dad, you know, she years later when she came back and wanted to be a farmer, wanted to have more of a role out on the land. And she told her dad, like, hey, you know, I really feel like you put more of the focus on the boys, maybe. Is that a thing? And he was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, I mean, nobody's denying that women were kind of being shuttled off into a different direction. The kitchen. The but- <laughs> Right, exact toward the kitchen. Or the hen house. Right, uh, so to speak. Yes, or, or, literally. or literally.
0: And that was also exemplified in a Super Bowl commercial a couple of years ago, which I remember, and the theme was, God created a farmer. And it was this very uplifting, beautifully shot commercial, really celebrating the farmer. And as pointed out in this USA Today article on the rise of women in farming, Almost all of the imagery in that commercial was of men on tractors, men in the pickup trucks, men on horseback. There were a couple of women here and there, but overwhelmingly male farmers.
1: Yeah. And talking to USA Today, Denise O'Brien, who has been farming with her husband for just about 40 years in Iowa, said that, yeah, it's great that there's this tribute to agriculture and that we still respect our farmers and we want to pay tribute to them. But on the other hand, she says they're missing more than half the population that's been involved with it. And so that's kind of what we want to talk about today in this episode. We want to show you that the stats regarding women and farming are way better than you might expect. And they've been getting better, according to the USDA. U.S. farms operated by women nearly tripled over the past three decades from 5% in 1978 to 14% by 2007. Now, of course, there is an issue of, of reporting. Um, the USDA's agricultural census only started counting secondary farm operators, including women in 2002. And the whole issue there is that, A lot of smaller farms, you know, you might think of the the little organic farm in Vermont or something. A lot of those smaller operations are run by women, by people of color. And so those are the smaller farms tend to be outside of the mainstream.
0: But even since 2002, when the USDA started including those secondary farm operators, there has been a 30 percent jump in women run farms, according to Lee Adcock, who's the director of the Women, Food and Agriculture Network. Now, there is a little bit of statistical conflict because we also found a post over at the National Sustainable Agriculture Commission, which identified a 6% drop in women as principal farm operators from 2007 to 2012. But that was actually, in statistical speak, that was more of an outlier because in the past few years, Almost all the trend pieces have been all focused on the rising role of women in agriculture, not just in the United States, but also around the world happening at such a pace that some are referring to this as the feminization
1: of agriculture. Yeah, and a large part of this so-called feminization is the fact that as societies become more geared toward urban centers, men are leaving the homes and the farms and the rural areas at a greater pace, basically leaving women behind. And so it's not necessarily that more women are setting out to be farmers, although that is certainly the case in many areas. But it also happens to be that they are sort of left behind, so to speak. And because
0: of how unintentional This feminization of agriculture is particularly in more developing nations. Uh, The U.N. has actually put a lot of focus on providing more resource for women farmers. Um, So, for instance, women farmers tend to own less fertile plots of land. They tend to own fewer work animals and also just have less education In general. So with this growing responsibility that women around the world are now having in terms of uh, the global food supply, the U.N. and a lot of other NGOs are saying, hey, well, we need to support them. We need to make sure that they are on as equal footing with male farmers as possible, because the land that they have and they're tending and harvesting
1: is very important to feed us. Exactly. And I mean, that is talking about the global the global farm, the global farming industry. But I think that exists here, too. We read plenty of stuff that talks about how, uh, quote unquote, minority farmers, whether that is someone who is a woman, a person of color, a queer farmer, as we'll get into a little bit later. Um, a lot of these people who aren't part of the big industrial farm complex have a lot of problems getting that important financial support, especially in terms of things like going organic, for instance, to be able to get that USDA funding. It's harder for minority farmers sort of wherever you are.
0: And can I just call out a few of the international women farmers that we ran across in our research, Caroline? Oh, please. Okay. So a lot of this was coming from Modern Farmer, which recently won a National Magazine Award. And I'll tell you what, friends, after spending a week on the Modern Farmer website, I want to subscribe. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic resource. And one of the things we were looking at was this photo essay of women farmers around the world. And among them were the seaweed mamas of Zanzibar, who harvest seaweed that we probably enjoy in our uh, farmer's markets or at our local sushi restaurant. Um, also, rural Nepalese women who make up a majority of sole landowners in Nepal. And then there was another post about the Yamagata Girls Farm in Japan, where it's this a group of young women who have started up A farm in Japan. It's exactly what it sounds like. Um, so it's really interesting to see beyond our own backyards Mm -hmm. how women are, you know, paving their own way in agriculture. But then the question becomes why more women? Especially when we look back in the United States and we see all of these trend pieces reporting on those, uh, those USDA statistics saying, Hey, there are more women. Running farms,
1: what's going on? Well, you know, like we touched on earlier, uh, the census is counting more of those small secondary farm operators, a lot of whom are women. And most female run farms do tend to be smaller and more diverse, and many are part of the organic and local food movements. Most also have annual sales under $10,000. And this is coming from that same NPR interview with Lee Adcock, the director of the Women, Food and Agriculture network. And she was saying that by far the biggest percentage of that increase in women farmers is women with small acreages, making not a whole lot of money, but making some money from agriculture and often raising food or livestock for food. And she says that they are really out there. They're out there working and they are raising the food that we are eating. But she says they're
0: not getting into farming to run quarter million dollar combines They're out there raising food. And this was something that Sonia Faruqi also explored over at The Atlantic in terms of gender and big agribusiness. The Tyson Foods, for instance, the, the ubiquitous chicken that you might see in your grocery stores. She says that women are scarce when it comes to running those large scale, big factory farms uh, and using Tyson as an example, Tyson Foods has one woman on its executive team. But at the same time, Faruqi says it's not that surprising to not see that many women, particularly in the leadership. There might be working in the factories, but not many women in the leadership of agribusiness, because that's usually not where our interest lies when it comes to farming. We're far more interested on average, in these smaller, more sustainable, slower kinds of food operations.
1: Yeah, and she says that when you look at four of the biggest multibillion-dollar factory farm corporations, women cumulatively constitute less than 10% of senior executives. And she's arguing in her article, though, that it would be only a good thing, only a positive thing to get more and more women on boards, on executive teams, because she argues that women have a different perspective, that, yes, we tend to want to be part of the smaller, organic, you know, homegrown, more local operations, but that our perspective on things like organic food, cage-free eggs, animal cruelty could help benefit the rest of the industry.
0: Yeah. And when it comes to those large factory farms, that's something that we're going to talk about a little bit more in our next podcast this week, which is all about Dolores Huerta, a woman who took on directly some of those big farms out in California. Um, but looking back at those women farmers, um, the rise of farmers markets, local, local farmers markets, which is something that we've seen here where we live in Atlanta has been highly attractive for female producers. CSAs working with farm to table restaurants. The entire slow food movement has been really, really attractive, um, to newer women farmers coming into the fold. And there's also just in general more opportunity by virtue, for instance, of farmland, family
1: farmland changing hands as baby boomers age. Yeah. And just the fact that it'll It's going to eventually start to be less weird in the public imagination that a woman could run a big farm and sit on a tractor and have it not be a big deal. And so maybe people like Helen Gunderson and her family, it won't be such a thing of like, well, we're definitely passing this down just to the sons and the daughter can go find something else to do. Old McDonald is going to become old Ms. Donald. Huh? Huh. That's right. And and Ms. McDonald We'll have the chance to get in on this because, according to USA Today, there are about 200 million plus acres of farmland in the U.S. that will change hands by 2027. And there's a real potential for women to end up owning half of that land. Yeah, and that's why you're
0: seeing more and more women-focused groups emerging like Women Food and Agriculture Network and uh, smaller operations like Annie's Project that directly serve women interested in farming to teach them not only how to grow crops, but also how to manage a farm business. Mm -hmm. And globally, too, we see organizations like Landessa and 1% for Women that also focus more on things like land use rights and supporting those women in agriculture who might need more of a leg up in the context of being in a developing
1: country. And you've got the issue, too, that we've touched on about women's interest growing in farming, particularly in sustainable agriculture, because traditionally women have been likelier to control household diets themselves. So they maybe perhaps are more likely to go in the direction of sustainability in organic farming, fewer pesticides, things like that. And when you look at nonprofits who are focused on sustainable agriculture issues, women compose 61.5% of those employees and 60% of those organizations executive directors. And then there are also the responses
0: of women farmers themselves about what personally motivates them to have, to, to pursue this career and lifestyle that isn't necessarily Easy and uh, Audra Mulkin, who is a photographer who created the Female Farmer Project, documenting women farmers across the United States, uh, posted on her like fan Facebook page asking her followers what draws women to farming, and so the responses included nurturing. A desire to set a good ecological example for children, creativity, exhibiting strength, the fact that women are natural feeders and cultivators, and also a desire to make a difference. So there really does seem to be, for a lot of women in farming, this connection between themselves as women and how they see themselves in that role and that connection to the earth and to being mothers and also to... Food production. Um, but as we're going to talk about in the second half of the podcast, for some women, farming is a feminist act as well.
1: So over at Bitch, Alice Parker writes about the eco-feminist movement. Perhaps you've read about eco-feminism and the links between feminism, womanhood, the traditional definition of that versus the definition that we would perhaps be aspiring to as farmers. Um, And Parker writes about shopping at a farmer's market and buying raw fermented sauerkraut locally or direct from a farmer, doing all of these things like knitting your own clothes, right? your bicycle, cooking something simple from scratch. She talks about them as feminist acts. It might not seem obvious. They might seem small, like they're very unimportant personal acts. But she says they oppose and unweave heartless systems of oppression like factory farms and sweatshops. These oppressive systems, she writes, carry the real prison walls, not your kitchen. And so it is. It's that argument that a lot of people make, whether it's about farming or something like the new domesticity movement, that... Being a provider, being the person who's raising the food, raising the livestock, knitting those hats, it doesn't have to be an oppressive act. What's oppressive, a lot of these people argue, is participating in a capitalist system that exploits workers. Yeah,
0: and also many would viably argue poisons the land and food as well through the use of things like pesticides. And if you want to learn more about ecofeminism, we've done an entire podcast all about that. So we're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of it, but you can find that podcast over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. But we do want to mention briefly the women's land movement of the 1970s. And that is women with a Y because these were radical feminists Who formed separatist agricultural communities, including places like Yellowhammer and Woman's Share, as a way to fully liberate themselves from the patriarchy. And again, there is a great piece. On this in Modern Farmer, my new favorite magazine, not even joking. <laughs> and it was fascinating to see how uh, there was, it was radical feminism and also lesbianism combined with agriculture. Some call this a take back the land movement where these re- women really firmly believed that they needed to eradicate men from their lives completely, mm-hmm. whether that's sexually or whether that is in like in any way providing for their livelihood. They were like we don't need you. We're just going to we're going to take back the land essentially.
1: Yeah, but unlike a lot of farms today, I think the focus was more on the act of separating themselves from men and the traditional system of of being with men, depending on men for providing, you know, of depending on those big factory farms. It the focus wasn't so much on the actual farming itself, which I think is different from t- a lot of today's farms where the farmer identity sort of comes first in a lot of cases.
0: Well, it's more about the food as politics rather than the, the food coming second to politics and personal politics. Mm-hmm. Although they did have their own indie magazines and newsletters
1: like Country Woman, of which I wish I could still subscribe. And while they were successful in demonstrating the fact that, oh, look, hey, women can actually grow plants. Well, some women, not me, typically. Uh, women can actually grow plants. They can farm. They can be successful growers. This movement, and this has been a criticism of many parts of second wave feminism. This movement was mostly made up of white middle class radical feminists, and it highlights the racial disparity that still to some extent exists within local food and CSA and the farmer's market movements.
0: Yeah, I mean, these a lot of these women who were part of the land movement met in liberal arts colleges, for instance. You're coming from a privileged position when you, in the background of, say, a cushier sort of higher education context, Separate yourself willfully and pursue this kind of lifestyle, which which will directly contrast, actually, what we're going to talk about in our next podcast with Dolores Huerta and the Chicano civil rights movement happening in California around the same time. But when you look at your local CSA today, when you go to your local farmers market today, there are lots of questions that are being raised about who those farmers markets and that wonderful, organic, sustainable agriculture is feeding. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at lower income areas and areas that might have higher concentrations of people of color, they are often in food deserts. Right. They don't have as much access. And the food that we're talking about is often more expensive. It's usually too expensive for me, Caroline.
1: And it is important to bring up these disparities that exist within things like the organic food movement, within the farmer's market movement and the rise in farmer's market popularity. But, side note, fun fact, Tuskegee professor Dr. Booker T. Watley's Pick Your Own Farms and Clientele Membership Clubs idea in the early 1980s was really what laid the groundwork for CSA's though credit is usually attributed to other people.
0: Yeah, we read about that in Mother Earth News, and we wanted to mention it just because it is an example of often the erasure of farmers of color, Mm -hmm. which is what we wanted to talk about as well, because black farmers make up just about 2% of the total farming population. And when it comes to agriculture and people of color, and we're talking about the United States, no big surprise that there's been a lot of structural racism embedded within the industries. I mean, going back even pre-slavery, just to the days of out-and-out land theft from Native Americans taking their farmland, to then slavery, and then sharecropping, and then today, with these massive agribusinesses and its reliance on immigrant
1: labor, often cheap and exploited immigrant labor, which, again, we'll get way more into in our next episode. But so you can understand then how it's sort of a a complicated issue sometimes when people of color want to come back and reclaim that land because it's so deeply embedded. Our country's relationship with people of color and agriculture is so deeply embedded. Well, it's been something
0: that families have tried to climb out of. And Mm -hmm. so for some people today, it would seem regressive to then want to go back and farm. And in fact, I mean, the the relationship between farmers of color and the U.S. government is still a testy one because many have filed civil suits against the USDA for receiving less government funding compared to white farmers. So there are still questions of discrimination. And then when we talk about women farmers of color, we have layers of discrimination upon layers of discrimination.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting, though, that a greater proportion of women of color operate farms than do white women. Because if you look back to stats from 2012, 14% of female principal farm operators were African-American versus 20% of them being Asian, and 30% were Native American, compared to 13% of female principal farm operators who were white in 2012. And because
0: of you know the existence of this diversity, but at the same time, Still, going back to our collective idea of what a farmer looks like, it's Old McDonald. It's usually an older white gentleman Mm -hmm. with a pitchfork and a plaid shirt and overalls and a little straw hat riding on a tractor. Natasha Bowens, a.k.a. Brown Girl Farming, uh, started blogging about diversity in farming and also started something called The Color of Food Project, to document the lives and the crops of farmers of
1: color around the United States. Yeah, this was really interesting looking at women who, like you said, Kristen... Felt almost compelled to leave rural areas, especially in the southeast, to leave those rural areas, leave that history that is so the the racial aspects intertwined with agriculture to leave that all behind. And then how when they got older, they realized, no, what I want to do is go back to the land, whether it's to whether it's a political statement or whether it's to really just take care of my family.
0: Or your community, like the example right. of uh, the woman in the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans,
1: starting a
0: garden to feed that community.
1: Yeah. And if you look at Natasha Bowen herself, she has a really interesting take on farming and femininity because she says that I've personally never felt more like a woman Then the first time I dug my hands into the soil. And that's a statement that may not align with what society defines as feminine. Getting our hands dirty, riding tractors, herding cattle... So affirming that feminine identity with the land and finding that solidarity while out on the road for the color of food was so important to me. And I love that because you really can argue that either way that farming is super traditionally feminine. If we go all the way back to hunter gatherers, men hunting, maybe women gathering and farming, Um or if you go all the way to the other side, and say that it's it's totally unexpected. It's non-traditional work for women.
0: Well, and for a lot of people, farming is radical as well. A lot of what uh, Bowens has discovered and talked about through the Color of Food Project is the food justice movement, that intersection of, you know, providing this kind of healthy, sustainable food for these communities that are usually not so linked in with their local farmers markets. Um, and she says that women are leading the food justice movement for farm workers. And she calls out examples like the coalition of Imokali workers in Florida. Um, Also, women like Saru Jirayaman of Roku United, the author of Behind the Kitchen Door, that talks about injustice uh, of, of women working in the food system's restaurant industry. She says the impact is heavy on every level from farm to table when it comes to women in our overall food system
1: from seed to table. And we're also seeing a rise in organizations like Southeastern African-American Farmers Organic Network that help train and mentor black organic farmers. But what's interesting about that organization, while it is certainly not focused solely on women, what people within that organization have noticed is that more and more people that they're dealing with are women. They're women farmers, especially in the Southeast, who are seeking more resources, basically more kind of like friends in the farming business. And in
0: addition to farmers of color organizing, getting more recognition and really fighting for food justice and seeing those intersections between identity politics and what is on our plates. We also have to talk about LGBT farmers who are another group challenging the status quo of who can be a farmer and what a farmer looks like. And this was something that was Really publicized on a more
1: national level by Jonah Mossberg's documentary Out Here. Yeah, the documentary highlighted a queer grassroots farming movement around the country, basically. And for Mossberg, he said that living in a rural setting really helped him to get more comfortable in his own skin. He says that it made me feel strong. It made me feel like everyone else around me because Mossberg is a trans farmer and what's so interesting in listening to not only what Mossberg has to say, but talking to other farmers too. Is that he makes it clear that sort of the farming identity is almost above everything else. And that when you are farming, when you've got your hands in the dirt, when you're in touch with the land or, you know, the animals that you're raising, it's almost kind of an equalizer. And so I love this idea that we saw in a couple different places about how minority farmers, whether you're a woman, a woman of color, uh, an LGBT farmer, You're you're queering the farming system and that it's less about being gay, being lesbian, being a trans farmer, and so much more about just being almost an unexpected farmer, being an outsider who's working to change that industry. Well, and we probably don't think of
0: rural America as necessarily being a safe space for LGBTQ individuals. Uh, But Mossberg told Bitch Magazine, and this was also echoed by other farmers that he talked to, In out here, he said, quote, I think small scale sustainable agriculture is inherently a logical and safe place for queer people because it's a place where we can enact and practice our queer values. And a lot of times in those farming communities, it seems like from the people that they've talked to, it's more about the connection to the land and the animals and what you are harvesting that often is more, more of a focal point than who you are. Yeah. If that makes sense.
1: But it seems like the common thread through all of these different groups of people is that they're bringing different perspectives to farming and how important that is. I mean, just like we talk about getting different perspectives in any industry, in any line of work and, and what a difference that different types of people can make, especially when it comes to our own health and the food that we put in our bodies.
0: Yeah, and I was really heartened to see as well that the USDA, the USDA has been supporting that queering of the farm system, as Mossberg put it, because um, it and the National Center for Lesbian Rights now host a rural pride campaign. Which is great. And can I just mention uh, my favorite quote from Mossberg, um, in which a bitch asked what the queerest vegetable was. Uh-huh. And he said, it's not rainbow chard. Everybody <laughs> always says rainbow chard. There is, in fact, um, an LGBTQ farming group out in the San Francisco Bay Area that I think is called the Rainbow Chard Coalition. Um, he says, it's not that he thinks it's celeriac.
1: Yeah, <laughs> which and made now me I, want to go buy it immediately. I know his description of cooking with it. I was like, oh man, I need to get my boyfriend to cook with this. And what about there? There was
0: also um, a goat farmer who runs a farm called like sassy nannies or something like that and makes incredible cheese. It was great to just see all these profiles of, you know, these LGBTQ farmers, these farmers of color, these women farmers, all of these people who are, reclaiming land in their own ways and also considering Caroline how much it contrasts my day-to-day highly urbanized life and imagining what what a joy that pace must be like. Not, I mean, they're waking up a lot earlier than I am, <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> yeah. and farming is not easy by any means, um, but just to think about how much those people that we've been talking about and reading about appreciate the land and what they do so much. Um, kind of made me want to go be a farmer, to be honest.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was, there was an attitude kind of in, in, in several of the people we read about who were sort of opting out of that, that urban, uh, nine to five lifestyle, who were pursuing something different, whether it was for political reasons or purely personal, wanting to get back in touch with a more uh, quote unquote a more natural way of living, of of living off the land. Yeah, and just uh, just fascinating
0: to see how that idea of what a farmer looks like is absolutely changing. Mm-hmm. So. I really hope there are some farmers listening, urban farmers, community gardeners. I don't care if you can grow plants. Hey, you're a farmer. In our <laughs> books. Uh, we want to hear from you, though. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. Um, and any thoughts on sustainable agriculture, food deserts, food justice, and this idea of queering our food system. Let us know all of your thoughts. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com, again, is our email address. You can also tweet us at Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And
1: now, back to the show. So, I have a letter here about our episode on passive-aggressive behavior. And, you know, in the episode, we pointed out that the stereotype is that more women are passive-aggressive than men, that it's totally a woman thing, but that in reality, it's way more of a kind of 50-50 split. And so we have a letter here from Brittany kind of talking about that. She says, just wanted to say great job on the passive-aggressive episode of the podcast. When I first saw the title, I thought, oh yeah, I definitely think it's more gendered toward females. But as you discussed it, I actually felt like my husband fit a lot of these categories, but in different ways. I can't believe the term, oh, I'm only kidding, never came up. We've had so many conversations about this in my relationship. I feel like my husband is constantly teasing or giving smart slash harsh remarks in the name of humor. And now I'm wondering if that's just his version of being passive aggressive. For what it's worth, he claims it's a remnant of his time in the military, which ties in perfectly to the beginning of that episode. I think girl-on-girl passive aggressiveness may be more common than male-on-male passive aggression, but I would argue that when it comes to straight, cisgender relationships between males and females, both platonic and romantic, they're equally full of passive aggressiveness on both sides, even if it displays differently, perhaps because of ingrained beliefs and physical power discrepancies, question mark? Thanks for the podcast, and thanks for all you do. And thank you, Brittany.
0: Well, Caroline, I have a letter here also from a Brittany, and it's on our OCD podcast. Um, And Brittany writes, I wanted to share my youngest brother's story. He was completely, quote, normal as a young child. And suddenly, when he was about 13 or 14, he began to exhibit intense, typically OCD-like symptoms. He washed his hands to the point that they cracked in blood. He would only use one bathroom out of the four in my parents' home because he felt he that was the only clean one, even though my parents got the very clean house. After taking him to the therapist for months with no results and in fact worsening symptoms, my frustrated mom resorted to researching his symptoms herself and came across a rare syndrome called PANDAS, which stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Streptococcal Infections. Basically, it's a mouthful that means kids who have had strep sometimes develop an autoimmune reaction to the bacteria which causes their immune system to begin attacking their brains, leading to symptoms that can look like OCD or other psychiatric disorders. It turns out that the existence of PANDAS is not agreed upon in the medical community and my brother's pediatrician wouldn't take my mother's inquiry about it seriously. My mom didn't give up there, however, and went to locate an immunologist slash pandas specialist a few hours away. In one visit, the specialist confirmed my brother's diagnosis as pandas rather than true OCD. He was prescribed a heavy round of antibiotics to kill off the strep bacteria. Within a week of taking the antibiotics, my brother's symptoms were noticeably improved and within a month he was back to normal. I just wanted to share this in case it might be helpful to other listeners, especially since PANDAS can mask itself as OCD, but is in fact very rare and hard to diagnose. So thanks for the heads up, Brittany, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is where you can send us your letters and for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with our sources, so you can... See all of those modern farmer articles I am now obsessed with? Head on over to Stuff Never Told For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.